When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Mass graves in Ukraine as Putin continues his bloody assault. The lead starts right now. New and intense video shows what officials claim are Russian tanks being taken out by the Ukrainian military. But in another Ukrainian city, so many people are being slaughtered by the Russians. The city is using trenches to bury them. And 1982, that was the last time prices in the U.S. jumped this much. And the cost of basic necessities such as food, housing, and fuel are driving this spike for the American people. Then, new concerns about the effectiveness of this year's flu shot, just as the country emerges from the coronavirus pandemic. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our world lead today amid new concerns for the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, as local officials there report intensified fighting on at least three sides of that capital city. Ukrainian defense officials sharing this video, claiming Ukrainian forces were able to destroy parts of a Russian military convoy advancing on Kiev from the east, forcing the rest of the tanks and armored personnel carriers to retreat. Kiev's mayor is saying earlier today it's clear these advances are part of the Russian plan to encircle the city and topple the Zelensky government. We're also getting a horrific new look at some of the humanitarian costs of this war, we want to warn you what we're about to show you is quite graphic. Photographers capturing this scene in the southeast city of Mariupol, a mass grave of murdered Ukrainians. The mayor saying at least 1,300 civilians have been killed in Mariupol alone since Putin's war began. Let's get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward. It's live for us in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And Clarissa, does it appear the Russian military is starting to make real gains in the cities around Kyiv? Well, there was a major development today, Jake, and that is that the Russians now appear to be making a push, not just in the northwest and west of the city, as they have been for the last 10 days or so, but now also from the east. Uh, the eastern suburb of Brovery uh, came under heavy fire today, a lot of fighting. There's some extraordinary drone video uh, which shows you essentially a large column of Russian tanks coming under fire by Ukrainian forces. You can literally see them being picked off from their defensive positions along the side of the road uh, by what one would imagine would be anti-tank missiles like the javelins that the U.S. has been supplying them with. So they're definitely uh, having a tough time in the sense that the Ukrainians are fighting hard and in a sense uh, have an advantage because the Russians are using the roads so the Ukrainians can lie in wait. However, according to a U.S. official, they are now on the eastern side 
uh, about 25 miles outside of the capital. Now, on the western and northwestern side, it's closer to 15 to 10 to 15 miles. So there is a sense now that the picture is looking like an attempted encirclement and laying siege to the city. And that's what we heard today, Jake, from the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, who said that he believes and Ukrainian officials believe that Kiev is still the prize and that the objective of Russian forces is to try to completely surround it, lay siege to it, bombard it, and topple the government. Now, that still could be a tall order for Russian forces, and it may take them quite some time. But certainly, this development, seeing Russian forces making that push to the east, is significant, and for the people of Kyiv, deeply concerning. Marissa, a meeting today between the foreign ministers of Ukraine and Russia ended, not surprisingly, with no real breakthroughs. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov even made the the deranged uh, lie that Russia did not attack Ukraine. So, What's next on that front? Well, you know, no one had been expecting a major breakthrough, but I think people were even more disappointed than they had expected to be, because what became clear from Foreign Minister Lavrov's comments was that there was no possibility within the context of these talks to even really discuss something like a ceasefire. He said that those negotiations have to take place in the sort of Belarus format that we've seen those Ukrainian and Russian delegations discussing in, uh, and that he, uh, you know, and, and Foreign Minister Kuleba said that it was apparent that he didn't even have the authority to say that the Russians would adhere to any kind of a ceasefire, even if that was the intention. One other thing that was really important, we heard Lavrov say, Jake, he was calling again for the denazification and demilitarization of the Ukrainian side. Those are two uh, very extreme demands that the Russians have made that they had seemed to back away from a little bit before, but putting them back on the table today, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward, live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe to southern Ukraine now. And CNN's Nick Payton Walsh in the strategic port city of Odessa. And Nick... Local military officials say that a Russian warship carried out five strikes over Odessa today. What do we know about this? Yeah, it's very hard to work out, Jake, frankly, how serious that was. We certainly saw a lot of panic early afternoon around the port area, sirens going off, uh, heightened anxiety. And then local officials said that there'd been shots fired, they thought, by a Russian ship, essentially trying to see what Ukrainian defences here would do in response. But... The sirens, frankly, relatively present throughout their afternoon and then before dusk, what sounded like anti-aircraft fire in that direction over there, not something common here at all and feeding into a broader picture of anxiety here in essentially a strategic goal for the Kremlin, the port of uh, Ukraine on the Black Sea and its third largest city, over which there's been quite a lot of fighting along the Black Sea coast in a bid to build up pressure here. Now, we've been talking a lot about Mykolaiv over the past week or so and uh, the regional governor there sounding kind of bullish today, although accepting that in the fighting on the outskirts of the town uh, there had been Ukrainian losses at checkpoints. He also said that an airstrike had taken out quite a bit of Russian armour. His latest messages sounding similarly confident. It's so hard to tell, frankly, how that corresponds to what's happening on the battlefield. One thing he did do, though, uh, Vitaly Kim, the regional governor, was post essentially a cheat sheet 
for Russian soldiers who may want to surrender. He said that those soldiers had thought they were on a training exercise, they kept hearing again and again from prisoners, and that they didn't want to go forwards to advance, but couldn't go backwards without risking being killed by their own fellow soldiers. Obviously, I can't verify those statements, but it shows the sort of propaganda or certainly messaging that we're hearing from the Ukrainian side here, uh, and how that fight for Mykolaiv remains increasingly brutal. We've seen the shelling uh, of indiscriminate uh, residential areas in there, but also strategically key when it comes to pressuring here at Odessa. But Jake, I have to say, for the first time today, I think we feel a little bit more like uh, Odessa is anxious like it hasn't been before. Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss General Wesley Clark, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. And General, much of your focus in the 1990s was the war in former Yugoslavia. These upsetting scenes that we see from Mariupol today, the mass graves, they're really quite reminiscent of that horrible period. Absolutely. The difference, of course, is that the Serbs then were an army and they were attacking the Muslim civilians who had no army. Today, the Ukrainians are really putting up a fight. But these poor people who are isolated in Mariupol and other urban areas, they're not armed. They're not combatants. They're just there on the receiving end. And it seems pretty clear that Mr. Putin is doing this on purpose to put humanitarian pressure on President Zelensky and hope he'll hope you'll break his morale and you'll give up and surrender. When we saw that attack in Mariupol on the maternity and children's hospital yesterday, the World Health Organization says that they've verified 24 Russian attacks on healthcare centers in Ukraine since the Russian invasion began. Uh, we saw Putin do this uh, in Syria as well, according to aid groups. What does Russia gain by bombing hospitals and medical centers? It's a terror campaign against the civilian population. It intimidates the medical personnel. It keeps people from going to the hospitals when they're wounded and need assistance. It runs out international uh, aid organizations who might be in those hospitals. It's pure terror. It's absolutely a war crime. And, uh, and the names of the Russian commanders, as well as, of course, Mr. Putin, who's ultimately in charge, need to be taken on this. And I hope the International Criminal Court will do so. The Wall Street Journal reported uh, that the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the UAE declined to take phone calls from President Biden in which he was going to try to get some help, apparently, for uh, oil prices and also support uh, for the NATO position against Putin's invasion and attack of Ukraine. You see what's going on in the world right now as something of an inflection point. Uh, we're changing into something else. Explain that. It is, Jake, this is an inflection point. Uh, even though we didn't choose it, this fight for Ukraine is critical for the future of American foreign policy and what the Biden administration says is a rules-based international order. And uh, many nations are on the sidelines. They've got arrangements with Russia. In some countries in Africa, they're receiving illegal Russian weapons and other things. They're connected to uh, Russia on the energy business or in financial transactions, and they doubt the ability of the United States to stick with it and help Ukraine. If the United States stays with it, Ukraine wins on the ground. The facts on the ground will determine a successful outcome for President Zelensky and the United States. If the United States backs away from this crisis, thinking that, well, that's, uh, you know, they're not a member of NATO, maybe uh, we can just focus on Taiwan, uh, the whole position, the credibility of the United States, the strength of the dollar, our alliances uh, will be much, much weaker. NATO's best defense is provided by President Zelensky in Ukraine. And that's simply a matter of fact. 
A fellow former Supreme Allied Commander, uh, Admiral Stravitis, uh, yesterday said that he thought the U.S. should rethink its opposition uh, to getting those Polish fighter jets, uh, MiGs, um, through Ramstein Air Base to Ukraine. Uh, and, and earlier today, uh, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, suggested that there is new, uh, there is a new intel assessment that informed the decision for the U.S. to not send those jets. How did you interpret that? And do you agree with Stavridis that the U.S. should figure out a way to get these jets to Ukraine? I, I do agree with Stavridis. I was happy he said that. Look, there is always going to be an escalating threat from Mr. Putin. He believes he can scare us into not doing anything. And he has the means to do some terrible things to the world. He's got chemical weapons. He's got biological weapons. He has nuclear weapons. He has weapons in space. All these things are of concern to the United States, but they're not going to go away. If we duck the challenge in Ukraine, those same pressures will be against us wherever we turn in foreign affairs. The time to face those pressures is now. This administration has to lean into the problem rather than ducking back from the problem. Got to be proactive rather than reactive. And being proactive means getting those additional fighter jets in. It means improving the arms shipments. It means putting a humanitarian corridor and preventing the isolation of Kiev. If we let Kiev be encircled, as clearly the Russians want to do, uh, then we'll be in a much, much worse position. Every move we've tried to make uh, seems to be broadcast to the public. Uh, there's people talking about it. And then before you know it, Mr. Putin says, well, that's an act of war. Pretty soon he's going to say giving food to the Ukrainians is an act of war. What are we going to do with that? So the time to get it is now to get ahead of this while the Ukrainians are still really in the fight. There is a very real chance that with the right air support and the right support in terms of javelins and stingers, they can defeat the Russian army on the ground. And if that army is defeated, Vladimir Putin goes and it's a new world. All right. Well, that's two successive former NATO Supreme Allied commanders that have come on the lead and said that the U.S. should rethink this uh, opposition to uh, getting those uh, Polish MiGs to Ukraine. General Clark, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Vice President Kamala Harris in Poland stopped just short of calling the Russian bombing of the maternity hospital in Ukraine a war crime. Why? Why not call it a war crime? Our next guest is an Army veteran and a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Then, it's not your wallet playing tricks on you. Gas is not the only thing costing much more. It's also basics, food, shelter. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead today. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Warsaw, meeting with the Polish president and other world leaders amidst Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine. And while Harris strongly condemned the Russian bombing of a maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol, Ukraine, Vice President Harris stopped short of calling the Russian atrocities war crimes. We are also very clear that any intentional attack on innocent civilians is a violation. The UN has set up a process by which there will be a review and investigations, and we will, of course, participate as appropriate and necessary. Here to discuss is Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona. He's an Iraq war veteran, now serves on the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman, do you believe this attack on the maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol was a war crime perpetrated by the Russians? Absolutely. Look, um, I, I can't read into what uh, the vice president was trying to say or why, 
But from my experience on the ground in Iraq, I was specifically told you don't shoot at civilian targets. You don't shoot at hospitals. You don't shoot uh, at mosque or religious institutions. That is a war crime and you will be held responsible for that. Uh, so the same goes for um, for Russia, for the, the, those that ordered those types of bombings and for the leaders that have approved it. As a veteran of war, does seeing the aftermath of, of this hospital bombing change your calculation at all on, on your opposition to uh, putting American forces into the sky over Ukraine to enforce a no-fly zone? Look, I still am against a no-fly zone. It does tell me that Russia is getting desperate and and adding a no-fly zone into this desperation mix will probably only escalate ourselves into a shooting war uh, against Russia. It doesn't mean that we can't arm uh, Ukraine so they could defend themselves, whether it's with more sophisticated drones uh, that they could use to really suppress the artillery fire and rocket fire that's causing this. Or I do think we should transfer the MiGs uh, to uh, Ukraine so they can actually fly and protect themselves. Uh, but at this point, what Russia is trying to do is trying to basically hammer the civilian uh, population into submission. Uh, and us getting to that mix will probably only cause a lot more tension between our two countries and, and I think eventually war. No-fly zones are not that easy to implement. Uh, it's going to require us probably shooting down a lot of, uh, of their planes, a lot of their, their SAMs. Uh, and potentially other targets that will, I think, eventually escalate us into something that we may not be able to control. The director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, said something today that I'd love for you to explain to our viewers. He said that a, a no-fly zone would not protect against many of the weapons that Russian forces are using in Ukraine right now. Um, for our viewers who may not be familiar with all these weapons or what a no-fly zone is, et cetera, and think, why aren't we protecting Ukraine from the skies? Why aren't we doing what Zelensky wants us? Can you explain that? Yeah, so for example, a lot of the actual targeting, especially targeted civilian targets, are coming in, in three ways. They're coming through artillery fire, which in a no-fly zone, we would not be uh, able for us to actually fire at their artillery pieces. They're coming at rocket fire. Also, again, we would not have, uh, we would not be eligible uh, under a no-fly zone for us to target them. Uh, and then they're also coming for long-range rocket fire that's actually coming from either Belarus or the Russian territory, which would be 100% out of our reach uh, uh, for us. Uh, number one, because it's you know out of the the conflict zone, and number two, because it is not uh, again another uh, plane. So uh, a no-fly zone actually is effectively only doing two things: number one, stopping the Russians from using their planes to attack civilians, civilian quarters, things of that nature, and in response to any type of provocation on our uh, planes trying to um, uh, protect a no-fly zone. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki warned yesterday uh, that Russia might try to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. And earlier today, the British Foreign Secretary echoed those fears on CNN. Is that a real possibility, you think? Well, look, if, if, if we know Russia and we've seen what they've done in the past, they have used uh, uh, you know, gas and chemical uh, weapons in the past. They've done it in Syria. I believe they did it in Chechnya. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it would not be beyond the well of doubt for them to do it. And I do say that I think that is a, a, an, er, an area that we have to start exploring. Like, what is the line when they start using chemical biological weapons? Um, I think that there is a, a different, different line that the world has to respond to that. Uh, and I think you know, Russia needs to understand that that's an escalation uh, that the world may not uh, accept. I certainly understand the idea, the argument being made by individuals such as yourself who, who don't want to have a no-fly zone for any number of reasons, but not the, the least of which is the idea that an American pilot would end up confronting a Russian pilot, and then there would be, we would have a direct military confrontation between the two superpowers. 
But how do you respond to the counter-argument Vladimir Putin doesn't respond to any rules, any lines. He is indiscriminately bombing hospitals, maternity centers. He has used chemical weapons. Uh, he is attacking a sovereign nation. What may, he's, he's done assassinations in NATO countries like the UK. What makes you think that after he conquers Ukraine, he's not going to turn around and attack Poland? How do you respond to that? Well, certainly, I think, uh, you know, he doesn't have a death wish. Uh, I think this idea that, uh, you know, Putin is has some kind of legacy and is willing to roll into almost anywhere to do that, I think that's incorrect. He uh, His army is barely able to cope with what they're doing with Ukraine. Trying to take on a major uh, NATO operation would be almost suicidal. So that's number one. Number two, you know, we have to mitigate for the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that we find ourselves in a shooting war. And Look, Jake, it's not just us shooting another plane down. You know, you have to realize that there are so many other platforms in uh, Ukraine and and in the theater that are going to start targeting our U.S. planes once they enter Ukraine. What happens when it's a Navy ship, uh, a Russian Navy ship that targets one of our planes and we have to respond in kind and defend it? We take down a massive uh, Russian Navy ship. You're escalating to the point where we may find ourselves again into a a new uh, paradigm of war. And we're talking to, you know, about a country that is kind of iffy about whether or not they want to use tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and Russia has t- talked about it in the past. So, uh, again, this is an escalation that we have to take very carefully. We have to think about it. We have to think about the consequences of it and not just run into this uh, emotionally. I think that some people are doing. Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona, thank you so much, sir. And as always, thank you for your service. Inflation hits its highest point in 40 years. President Biden is pointing fingers at one man. Stay with us. In our money lead, President Biden is blaming Russia's invasion of Ukraine in part for soaring consumer prices. Today, a new report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows inflation has spiked 7.9%, over the last 12 months. That's the highest surge in 40 years. Biden said higher gas and energy prices were a large contributor as markets continue to react to Putin's actions in Ukraine. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, the White House today is also warning that Putin may try to use chemical weapons in his invasion of Ukraine, but they were unwilling to say how the Biden administration might respond. Ukraine will never, never be a victory for Putin. President Biden noting the global efforts to stop Russia's invasion of Ukraine as the White House is warning President Putin may be preparing to take a drastic step. They not only have the capacity, they have a history of using chemical and biological weapons, and that uh, in this moment we should have our eyes open for that possibility. Biden has maintained that the U.S. will not send American troops to fight Russian forces in Ukraine, but top aides are declining to say whether a chemical weapons attack changes that position. Are you saying if Russia does conduct a chemical weapons attack in Ukraine, there will not be a military response from the United States? I'm not going to get into hypotheticals. What we're saying right now is they have the capacity and the capabilities. Lawmakers from both parties pressing top officials today after the Pentagon rejected the idea of sending more aircraft to Ukraine, despite pleas from President Zelensky. Get us a better answer. We haven't gotten a good answer to the question. This is war. People are dying. We need to get this aircraft immediately to the people of Ukraine. In Poland, Vice President Harris also sidestepping questions on fighter jets and instead emphasizing the U.S.-Polish relationship. The United States and Poland are united 
in what we have done and are prepared to do to help Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. Full stop. With no end in sight to Russia's war against Ukraine, U.S. inflation is climbing again and hitting a four-decade high as prices rose 7.9 percent in February compared to a year ago. Gas, food and rent all more expensive as fears about the invasion's strain on global energy markets are growing. We do anticipate that gas prices and energy prices will go up. That is something that the president has conveyed very clearly to the American public. Biden casting the blame on Putin, but with the national average for a gallon of gas setting new records, including a seven-cent increase overnight, Republicans say Biden is deflecting. So it's all blamed on Russia. Energy prices have been going up dramatically from the day he took office. Now, Jake, the White House says they're not ruling anything out when it comes to options for lowering gas prices. They have been in touch with oil companies, but Republican lawmakers on Capitol Hill are also being very critical of the Federal Reserve, saying that they have been too slow to act. Though we should note next week they are expected to raise interest rates in hopes of cooling off the economy. Though, Jake, that is only expected to be the first and what is supposed to be a series of steps to do so. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN business editor at large, Richard Quest, and CNN economics commentator, Catherine Rampell. Catherine, let me start with you. This new inflation report reflects consumer prices in February, which doesn't capture most of Russia's invasion and the sharp spike in energy prices. How bad do you expect the numbers to be next month? Uh, Pretty bad, Uh, possibly worse. As you point out, we have seen a run up in gas prices, oil prices in the weeks since those data were collected. Beyond (coughs) that, the other categories that are covered in that report Uh, Things like shelter, food, uh, you know, hotels, airfare, almost any category you can imagine that the consumers spend money on, those also went up uh, generally. So, uh, yeah, next month I think is going to be pretty painful. Inflation is here to stay. Richard, the Federal Reserve, as uh, Caitlin noted, meets next week. It's expected to begin its year of raising interest rates. Uh, We had the inflation issue before Russia's invasion started. Will higher interest rates make any sort of difference? Well, it's going to have to, you've got to start somewhere and the Fed's going to start next week. Uh, The question will become not if, but when and how. And it's also going to be how long. How long do they leave between rate hikes? Because they, they know they've got to deal with the existing inflation. They've got to worry about the inflation that Catherine's just been talking about. And then on top of that, the uncertainty that they don't want to tip the economy, which could be fragile if the world, if the war gets worse. So that's the balancing act that Jay Powell and his colleagues will be doing. We will look for nuance. You're going to look for guidance shift. You're going to look for different meetings saying different things. But Jake, rates are going up, period. Catherine, the the housing market is red hot right now. Rent prices are up 4.3 percent from year to year. How much are you watching this market right now as the Fed's way how much to raise interest rates? The housing market is incredibly critical. Uh, Shelter costs are the number one expense for most American households. They represent a huge share of total consumption each month. So if those prices are going up, people will feel it. And the real question is, what can be done, particularly in the near term, to bring the pressure down in terms of those housing price increases? And there's very little without increasing supply. Uh, We've already seen a lot of disruptions 
in the construction part of the U.S. economy, you know, which is key, of course, to increasing housing supply. So it, it's, it's really going to put a lot of pressure on, you know, middle income families, low income families who pay so much of their earnings in rent. And Richard, uh, there are often a lot of residual effects when, when economic mm. sanctions are imposed. Uh, sometimes this, the, the punishments are passed on to ordinary people, to average consumers. We got an example today with the Chelsea Soccer Club in England, which has now been sanctioned because of its owner, a Russian oligarch. Right, Roman Abramovich. He's owned Chelsea for the last 20 odd years. Tonight he's been, or today he's been sanctioned. And this is the evening newspaper in London. Abramovich's empire in ruins as he hit sanctions. So what can Chelsea do? They can't, they can't buy new players. They can't take on new, they can't sell new tickets. They can't sell souvenirs. They can pay existing wages. The club is basically in a sanctions gridlock because of this. Now, remember, you and I, Jake, have talked about this. This is why so many U.S. corporations pulled out of Russia even before things got bad, even before they were obliged to, because companies like Apple and now McDonald's, of course, and Marriott and others, they don't want to be caught in a sanctions trap where they don't know what they can and can't do trading. So it's Abramovich's Chelsea, the fans and all of that. It's the inflation that Catherine was talking about that's hitting you, me, everybody. It's just we're going to feel the effects. And it's about time that, elect, that the elected leaders started making this a little bit more clear that an economic war is not painless. Catherine Rampal, Richard Quest, thanks to both of you. Great to see both of you. One day they're a family. The next day they're separated by war. Not sure where they're going to sleep at night. Getting out of Ukraine for refugees, that's only half the struggle. Stay with us. In our world lead, more than 2.3 million refugees have fled Ukraine since Russia started its brutal invasion into the country just two weeks ago. And nearly all of those refugees are women, children, and seniors, according to the United Nations. Now neighboring countries such as Poland, Moldova, and Romania, where CNN's Miguel Marquez reports, are trying to house thousands of these Ukrainian refugees. The refugee crisis deepening. And I open just my bag, just thinking what I need, and maybe about two hours. Anna Lukanyenko from Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine, a city hammered indiscriminately by Russian rockets and artillery. Lukanyenko had two hours to pack up her two kids, her mother, and her children's godmother. Two hours to pack. No idea if she'll see her husband, grandparents, or country again. Let's see in my heart, I said, I think that Ukrainian will be free and everything will be okay, but who knows when. Lukanyenko trying to get from Bucharest to friends in Poland, one story of millions. Families now being torn apart in Ukraine and across Europe. We will see people who are without capabilities, without possibilities, financial possibilities, who are running from war. They are running for their lives, taking just a very few things with them, and sometimes even without documentation. The speed at which Ukrainians are transformed into refugees increasing exponentially as Russia continues punishing attacks on civilian and military targets alike. 
We don't know what is coming and how many people are coming to Bucharest. As far as we know, the people coming here are only in transit. A few of them remain in Romania. But we don't know how many people will come, so we need to be prepared. Romanians not just waiting to receive Ukrainian refugees. Now they're collecting and organizing massive amounts of humanitarian supplies, all to be shipped directly to Ukraine. They need drugs. And we have a specific list of what kind of drugs. They, they need uh, medical kits and uh, they need food that can be preserved. Did you ever think you'd be in this situation? No. I mean, a war in 2022, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable is right. This is the main train station here in Bucharest. I want to give you an idea of what's happening. This is, it looks like another load of mainly refugees headed to the Hungarian border. We have seen this sort of ebb and flow into Romania for the last week. About 360,000 refugees have come here. Only about 85,000 have remained, but that number is growing. Here in the city of Bucharest, they are getting ready to open up their biggest indoor area in the next day or so. That can hold up to 2,000 refugees on a temporary basis. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez from the capital of Romania. Thank you so much. Not going anywhere, even though you are. Why the Biden administration is extending the mask mandate for planes and trains. That's next. In our health lead, got spring break plans? Better still pack a mask. In a story you saw first on CNN, the Biden administration is expected to announce a 30-day extension of the federal transportation mask mandate. The mandate was set to expire a week from tomorrow, but now you will still need to wear a mask at airports and on planes and trains, at least until April 18th. Let's bring in Dr. Saju Matthew, who's, who's a public health specialist. Uh, Dr. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Uh, sources tell CNN this decision was made in, accor- in accordance with current CDC data, but cities and states have been lifting mask mandates for weeks now. Does this make any sense to you? You know, Jake, I'll be honest with you. I'm really absolutely excited, but also in a way, it's a no-brainer. I mean, this pandemic is still ongoing. I mean, people think that the pandemic is over. We have about 1,600 people dying a day. And let's remember, before vaccines actually came into being, it was masks that really helped us. I mean, a lot of healthcare providers fell sick, but as we were close to COVID patients without a vaccine, it was an effective mask that helped us. Now think about an airport. You've got people traveling from all over the world, meeting, going between U.S. cities, restaurants. And my biggest concern is really congestion at the terminals, not as much as being in an aircraft with the HEPA air filtration system. So to me, it makes 100% sense that we are extending. I still think that this should be an indefinite extension until the pandemic actually becomes an endemic. And we're far from that. Do we know who is dying every day? You said about 1,600 people in the United States are dying every day. Are they almost entirely unvaccinated individuals, unboosted individuals? Do we know? You know, we just ran some data, right, uh, about a couple of weeks ago on a meeting. I was on a Zoom call meeting with my hospital, which is a pretty big hospital system. And we went through pretty much each demographic and age group. And 98.8% of people in my hospital that are in ICUs that are dying are unvaccinated. We still have a a number of people that are there, elderly with diabetes, hypertension, obesity, that may not be boosted. 
but the majority of people that are severely sick are people that are unvaccinated. Speaking of masks, a new study out today in the journal Pediatrics shows that school districts that have universal masking, they reduce the spread of COVID in their school districts by a whopping 72% compared with school districts that have optional or no mask usage. Does this mean, in your medical opinion, that kids should keep wearing masks in schools? Yes. I mean, I definitely think that when you step out of your bubble, which is your home, and you're around people whose vaccination status you don't know, I am still a medical analyst that thinks that we should be wearing masks. And Jake, what's also most important is the quality of masks. I can tell you that the number of people I correct at work, I'm a primary care doctor seeing about 20 patients, a good 40% of patients are not wearing the right mask and it doesn't have the right fit. So a K95 or an N95 mask, I definitely think should be worn in schools not only to protect our children, but to protect the, the teachers who might be immunocompromised and older. New preliminary CDC data out this afternoon shows that this year's flu vaccine is not as effective in fighting off the most common flu virus, even though the flu season's been pretty mild compared to pre-pandemic flu seasons. Does that surprise you? Oh, no, it doesn't. You know, actually, every year when we look at the flu vaccine, the F it's about 40 to 60 percent in trying to prevent the onset of influenza against mild disease. Now, the bad news is this year was only 16 percent against the most uh, dangerous strain, which potentially could have caused a lot of hospitalizations, but it never took off. And yeah, this year's, you know, vaccine was definitely ineffective. But the good news is the same mitigation guidelines that we have taken to prevent COVID-19 basically has also prevented a surge of flu cases. I didn't see any flu cases last year, Jake. This year, I just saw two. So that's that's the good news. Dr. Saju Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. Your expertise appreciated. Coming up, it's a new low. Russia now claiming Ukrainian victims of their own shelling are, quote, crisis actors. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. New this hour, play ball. Breaking details about a labor deal reached between the Major League Baseball owners and the Players Union will tell you when you'll be able to go back to the ballpark. Plus, for the first time, victims of the opioid crisis confront members of the billionaire Sackler family about how OxyContin ruined, if not took, their lives. We'll talk to one man who became addicted to the drug and had some choice things to say to the Sacklers earlier today. And leading this hour, breaking news. Intense fighting on the outskirts of Ukraine's capital as Russia and Ukraine fail to reach an agreement on humanitarian corridors or a ceasefire. This comes as no surprise. After all, Russia keeps lying, even denying that it bombed a maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol, where today we see these disturbing images of Ukrainians putting their war dead, killed by Russia, into mass graves. From Kyiv, CNN's Matthew Chance has an up-close look at how Ukrainians are trying to fight back against the Russian invasion. The aftermath of fierce fighting east of the Ukrainian capital. This is what you get when you invade Ukrainian land, the narrator says. As Russian forces attempt to encircle Kiev, the Ukrainian military says it's defeated an entire regiment of Russian tanks and liquidated its commander. Drone video captured the armoured column in the city of Brovary being attacked and destroyed. The latest battlefield win in what is proving for now to be a determined Ukrainian stand. 
But on the diplomatic front, stalemate. Despite the highest level talks since this Russia-Ukraine conflict began, foreign ministers meeting in the Turkish city of Antalya, Ukrainian officials tell CNN the Russian side appeared unwilling or unable to make a deal. We also raised the issue of a ceasefire, 24-hour ceasefire, to resolve the most pressing humanitarian issues. Uh, we did not make progress on this since uh, it seems that there are other decision makers uh, for, this, uh, for this matter in Russia. It's these gut-wrenching scenes in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol provoking wide international scorn. A maternity hospital devastated by Russian forces, according to Ukrainian officials, killing at least three people inside, including a child. Horrific images are circulating, like this one, of pregnant women blooded in the attack. Still, the Russian foreign minister is insisting this was a legitimate strike on a far-right Ukrainian militia, the Azov Battalion. Not a war crime. At the meeting of the UN Security Council, our delegation presented facts about this maternity hospital having long been seized by the Azov Battalion and other radicals, and they have driven all the pregnant women and the nurses out of it. But in cities across Ukraine, trapped civilians are desperately escaping the fighting. These, the latest scenes from Irpin, north of Kiev, where the city's mayor says nearly half the population has already fled. With no peace in sight, Ukraine's capital is emptying as Russian forces advance. Well, Jake, shortly after meeting his Russian counterpart in Turkey, the Ukrainian foreign minister tweeted some absolutely horrific images of a toddler who was very badly injured, being hurriedly evacuated from a, a suburb north of the Ukrainian capital, basically uh, saying, uh, along with that tweet, that, look, this is why Putin has sent his army to kill Ukrainians, including children. He pointed out that over 70 children have so far been killed uh, in this conflict. And the foreign minister of Ukraine saying that he will personally ensure that each war criminal faces justice. Jake. Matthew Chance reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you. Stay safe. Here to discuss Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. He's the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. Uh, on the question of the U.S. helping the Polish government to send the Soviet-made MiG fighter jets to Ukraine, your colleague, uh, Senator Gene Shaheen, Democrat of New Hampshire, told CNN, quote, it's not clear why we are standing in the way. Uh, earlier today and yesterday, two different former NATO Supreme Allied commanders told us that they think the U.S. should be trying to, to help the Polish government get, the, get these MiGs to Ukraine. Do you agree? Well, Jake, I believe we are sending a lot of aid, 17,000 anti-tank um, tools. And I just was meeting with some of our British colleagues. I think they announced another 3,600. I think we need to get more of those Turkish drones um, that have been very effective. The question on the planes, I'd love to find a way to get the planes to the Ukrainians. What I need to get the answer to, though, is you know, will the balance of NATO agree with this? Um, I know there's some argument coming straight from Poland versus coming from a, a NATO American air base in Germany. Is that a distinction with a difference? And what I'm trying to get an answer, an answer to real time 
is part is part of the reluctance, the fact that other NATO members are reluctant to have that moving forward. NATO still has, I'm sorry, Ukraine still has a substantial number of its uh, airplanes uh, that they are able to use. The truth is, a lot of the Russian, a lot of the airspace, not all of it by any means, but a lot of the airspace where the Russians uh, have control, they also have control of the airspace. That's one of the reasons why you've not seen the existing Ukrainian Air Force, for example, bomb that long column um, that has been sitting for so long. The director of national intelligence testified today that there's a new assessment about Ukraine that contributed to the decision of the Biden administration to not help these Polish MiGs get to Ukraine. Do you know of new intelligence suggesting that Vladimir Putin might see this as escalatory and possibly bomb Poland, bomb some other NATO ally? Well, clearly, as, as some of the testimony that was even um, made in public today, that, that, that testimony that Odie and I, Haynes, made was before my committee. Uh, this was the open threat hearing. And then we went into a closed session. I obviously can't speak about anything in the closed session, but there clearly is an escalatory ladder. Um, some of that is, of course, based upon judgments. Um, one of the questions uh, that I think were po- posed, and uh, if, is it that much more of an escalation if, if the planes fly from a NATO base than if they were somehow transported in another way from Poland uh, into Ukraine? Uh, and the question I want answered is um, is you know, what do the balance of NATO nations say? We, we This is a group that so far, I think, again, because the Biden administration has worked hard to keep this coalition together, to build this coalition, uh, I can assure you a, a year ago, NATO was broken in the aftermath of Trump. It has been built back the last four months, uh, particularly with our British allies. We've had to convince uh, the reality of the threat, and, and now NATO has that. What I don't want to have happen is that unified force against um, Putin's aggression splinter in any way. And that's the question I'm trying to get the answer to. There are all these pro-Russia social media accounts trying to convince the public that these news reports about Ukrainians suffering and dying are not true. They're falsely claiming that the the victims we've seen on TV are crisis actors. It's obviously offensive and false. Um, What's your reaction when you see this propaganda campaign by Russia that, that these are crisis actors and not actual Ukrainian victims? Well, Jake, is, uh, you may recall, uh, uh, when the war first started, I wrote all of the major social media platforms um, to not allow Russian entities to monetize themselves during, uh, during, this, um, during this tragedy. And, you know, and I'm a big critic of the social media platforms for the most part, but most of them took off RT, took off Sputnik. Many of them made clear that there was not American advertising backing that. On the question, and, and I'm trying to get more into again on, on of this, the fake social media posts, this is a little bit of a, a conundrum. We've got American companies who provide some of the internet backbone um, for the internet in Russia. Some of them are exiting, and on that level I applaud, and maybe some of those Russian social media fake videos cannot get out within Russia into the rest of the world. The flip side of that, of course, is that many of the images of opposition to um, um, to Russia. There was a, a classic example recently where there was a a governor out in Siberia at a, some form of town hall, and Russian there his citizens were basically saying, "Why did you send 
our young men who were in a police brigade to uh, Belarus. You told us they were going for a training mission and they're being used as cannon fodder. So um, that obviously was where the Internet was being used as a powerful statement for the Russian people to hear some of the protests. So getting this right, I I do think the social media companies need to do more to take down these false videos. That is something disinformation, misinformation that we've been we've been urging for some time. But taking down the whole Internet inside Russia itself uh, is a bit of a dual edged sword at this point. Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Thank you so much, sir. It is horrific, but Russia's targeting of hospitals is nothing new. They've done it before for years in another country. Stay with us. In our world, the horrifying images of the Russian attack on the maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol, Ukraine, may have shocked some, but it does seem to follow a familiar pattern of Russia's appalling war tactics. In 2019, Russia bombed four hospitals in Syria in the span of just 12 hours, according to an extensive New York Times investigation. The group Physicians for Human Rights estimates under Assad and Putin over a 10-year period, there were 600 attacks on at least 350 separate medical facilities. Almost 1,000 medical workers killed in total. Recently, it wasn't just the attack in Mariupol, Ukraine. On February 24th, the Ukrainian head of the Donetsk region said a Russian strike injured at least six medical workers when the Russians struck just outside a hospital there. And earlier this month, the Kiev Independent reported that Russian missiles struck near another maternity hospital. This is what Putin does on purpose. CNN's Phil Black now takes a closer look at the grim aftermath in Mariupol to find atrocities not seen since World War II, perhaps. We want to warn viewers... These images are disturbing. When you hear a Ukrainian city is under siege, cut off and under bombardment by Russian forces, this is what that means. No one knows how many people have been killed in Mariupol. But it's too many to allow the care and dignity that usually comes with death. Relatively few images have escaped Mariupol since the siege began. These were captured by AP photojournalist Yevgeny Malaletka, who says he saw around 70 bodies buried in this trench over two days. They arrived wrapped in whatever people could find and use, plastic bags, even carpet. And this shows why it's likely there are many more. Mariupol suffering from above. Before and after satellite images reveal extraordinary devastation in commercial and shopping areas, residential neighbourhoods too. Russian munitions are steadily wiping out this city. It's already unlivable. There is no food, water or power. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says a child in Mariupol has died of dehydration, probably for the first time since the Nazi invasion. During a meeting in Turkey, the Ukrainian foreign minister says he asked his Russian counterpart for a humanitarian corridor to allow people to leave Mariupol. Unfortunately, Minister Lavrov was not in a position to uh, commit himself to it, but he uh, will correspond with respective uh, authorities. That means Sergei Lavrov has to ask his boss. But Russia's top diplomat was comfortable repeating Russia's explanation for bombing a maternity hospital in Mariupol on Wednesday. The Russian version says there were no patients or staff in these buildings, just soldiers. 
This was the reality, captured in the moments immediately after the blast. An obviously pregnant woman is stretched from the side. Another, hurt, bleeding, walks out, carrying what she can. Russians often honour the bravery and determination shown by their own citizens who were besieged by Nazi forces in the Second World War. Now Russia is inflicting that same suffering on the people of Mariupol. Phil Black, CNN, London. And our thanks to Phil Black for that report. Moments ago, the mayor of Mariupol said Russia's attacks on his city were a, quote, cynical and destructive war against humanity. He accused Putin of genocide for these attacks. Joining us now to discuss war crimes and the possibility of prosecutions for Putin's aggression. Ambassador David Sheffer, he served as the former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues. He is now director emeritus of the Center for International Human Rights at Northwestern University. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. So Vice President Harris called these, quote, atrocities of unimaginable uh, proportions, but she deferred to the U.N., on whether they're war crimes. I mean, what else could they be? They are clearly targeting civilians. I think the time has arrived where our officials can use the term atrocity crimes more liberally. They don't have to say war crimes. They don't have to say crimes against humanity, genocide. These are all atrocity crimes. The day will come when we define whether or not it's specifically a war crime or a crime against humanity. All of them have different standards of proof and evidence, intention, who actually commits these crimes, at what level of command uh, are these crimes uh, uh, orchestrated. But the point is, atrocity crimes have arrived in Ukraine, and that is undeniable. And I think the time really has come for U.S. officials now to sort of use that term. They've, they've said aggression. They've said investigation of war crimes. They've said atrocities of, uh, of intolerable significance. proportions, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, really, the, the vernacular is out there. The terminology is out there. But I think it's, it, it would just be more clarifying for people to simply to say atrocity crimes are occurring. It is essential to prevent them being, from being further committed. And it's also essential for those who have committed them to be punished. So Putin has done this. The Russians have done this for, for years, targeting hospitals. Uh, we saw it uh, in Syria. You heard my, my introduction to the piece, to Phil's piece. Um, one New York Times investigation found four hospitals targeted in just 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not this Mariupol maternity and children's hospitals, not even the first Ukrainian hospital in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. Why does he do this? Well, I think he does it first and foremost to terrorize the population, to incentivize them to flee as refugees. His tactic was the same in Syria with Assad. You terrorize the civilian population to leave the civilian populated areas. Then you level those areas. You reclaim your authority over those areas. And perhaps someday some of those individuals return, but they return under your subjugation. So that's a clear tactic. It is one that is completely oblivious to any consideration of the legality or illegality of the tactic. But it certainly is playing out here. And I might add, Jake, that, you know, President Putin has demonstrated that he knows what is occurring in Ukraine. He's not ignorant of it. He obviously knows. As the top leader, he has the responsibility to prevent those crimes from occurring or, and, or to punish those who have committed them if he wasn't able to prevent them. He's clearly doing neither. So he's incriminating himself every single day mm-hmm. as the top commander. 
That means that when he's indicted by the International Criminal Court, and I think that will occur within two to three months, mm-hmm. his is an easier indictment to draft than what we've had in the past, where you don't sometimes know whether the top leader actually is aware of the actual crimes be, uh, occurring. Uh, they don't make public statements about it. They don't advertise themselves as orchestrating the crimes, of orchestrating the, invention, uh, the invasion. Right. But Putin has done so. One other note about the creating refugees, uh, as I, I just know from military sources, that Putin loves creating instability in Europe by creating these refugee crises that cause uh, all sorts of uh, political issues yes. as well as financial issues. Uh, lastly, what do you say to somebody who says, OK, uh, Russia gets uh, Putin gets indicted by the International Criminal Court? Russia is not a member of the International Criminal Court. and The United States isn't either, either for that matter. So what? What does that mean? The answer is it doesn't matter. The International Criminal Court has full jurisdiction over Ukraine in this matter for the investigation. 39 countries referred it to the ICC legitimately. When he's indicted and when the generals are indicted, the sanctions that have been imposed upon Russia, the most severe in history, will not be lifted until two things happen. One, The Russian military withdraws from the Ukraine and the Ukraine restores its territorial integrity and sovereignty. And two, Putin and the indicted generals, the indicted fugitives from justice, are surrendered to The Hague. It would be implausible for the sanctions to be lifted until that happens. This is exactly what we did in the Balkans with Milosevic, Karadic, Mladic. We kept the sanctions on Serbia until they were surrendered. And I see no basis to think that European countries or even the United States, Canada, will tolerate them not being surrendered. Um, Those sanctions will will stay in place until they are surrendered. Ambassador David Sheffer, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate your time. With friends like these, Democrats are piling on President Biden for how he's handling the struggling economy. That story next. In our politics lead, as Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine rages into its third week, President Biden faces his biggest international crisis while here at home and not unrelatedly soaring prices are threatening to slow a surging economy. Today's report on inflation showing the biggest increase in prices in four decades. And that's measuring the period before Russia's war on Ukraine. Experts think prices are going to continue to rise, perhaps even worse. And Americans are already feeling it from record gas prices to rising rent and the climbing cost of putting food on the table. Our panel is here to discuss all this and more. So let me start with you. West Virginia uh, Senator Joe Manchin told CNN this morning he doesn't think the Biden administration has done enough to deal with inflation. Uh, Mark Kelly, uh, up for re-election, one might note, a senator from Arizona, he's calling for Biden to suspend the gas tax. How do you get ahead of this if you're Joe Biden? Well, if you're, you've already got Democrats that are starting to, you know, separate themselves from you, it doesn't look that great in terms of being able to get ahead of it as a full party. Right. Because you knew you were going to have the Republicans criticizing any move and that it was going to get even worse after this decision to block Russian oil imports, shooting up the prices more. So, um, you know, the president is going to be having to do a real sort of PR campaign because he's kind of boxed himself into this place where he can't undo the direction that the inflation is going in. He can try to make certain policy moves to try to minimize that effect. He can try to explain, as he has in some, to some extent, we're going to have to take on some pain here because of everything that's going on in the world. We want to do what we want to do. But if that's not already working with his own party, like the more moderate wing of his own party, it's going to be a really difficult message to get 
the whole party to accept. And the White House is clearly trying to blame this on Putin as much as possible, even the part that has <laughs> nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. but, no, I mean, the rollout, this, uh, his remarks the other day in announcing the oil embargo, not just calling Putin's war, but Putin's uh, price hikes here at home. You're going to be hearing more of that. You're going to be hearing as much of that as the market will bear, uh, if I can mix metaphors for a second. And like, look, part of it, sure, uh, part of it is uh, Biden trying to transfer uh, blame or, or make, make Putin, he's an easy villain. Part of it, I think, is laying the groundwork, trying to set Americans' expectations for what's coming, which is worse. And my colleague, Neil Irwin, um, the great economics writer uh, at Axios, has said now uh, it looks much more likely that inflation could hit double digits, uh, that there could potentially need to be discussion of a recession to break the inflationary streak. This is not just going to be oil uh, in terms of the impact of Russia. It's going to be metals, too, and that's going to have an impact on cars and a whole bunch of other stuff across the chain. So it's not only convenient for Biden to try to talk about Putin, he has to. Yeah. And let's take a listen to um, Senator uh, John Thune uh, today. We've been trying to get the administration's attention on this issue for a long time without any success. Their obsession with uh, electric vehicles eclipses everything else, including solutions that not only would help Midwestern farmers lower costs for consumers, but also reduce emissions. Do you, do you agree that the Biden administration is talking too much about green energy alternatives and not enough about uh, what people in South Dakota might be more inclined to listen to? Jake, you should, certainly shouldn't lead with electric vehicles right now. I mean, there's got to be a sense of urgency. Look, Republicans are going to play politics. But we needed from the beginning kind of like an explainer in chief. I mean, my God, when you think about the context, we're just coming out of a once in a lifetime pandemic. There was pent up demand. Everybody wants to get out there. The supply's not there. I wish from the beginning that Joe Biden had done a better job explaining to the American people about all of this, about inflation and, and, and the same thing with gas prices. Don't blame other people. Explain. I think the American people would support him. What do you think? Because this is going to be the challenge, uh, forget the international crisis that he has to deal with, in terms of the midterm elections, in, in terms of his own possible re-election campaign, this is going to be what Joe Biden has to deal with. Like, the economy's doing well, but in, inflation is the big headline. I agree. I mean, the one thing that that clip doesn't show is when Thune was on the Senate floor, he also said that Biden should um, reopen the Keystone Pipeline, which we know would he's not going to do. He's, he blocked on day one. And that is an important issue around climate for his base. I think that Joe Biden, I say this all the time, he has to bring the American people in, let him let them know that he is empathizing. He understands the pain. He's a working class American. He gets it. He knows how hard it is like to, to fill your tank up. But these weren't issues that just were around Vladimir Putin. That, that line is going to fade rather quickly. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with the war in Russia, but I don't think that in the midterms that the American public is going to connect gas prices to Putin. They're going to connect it to Biden. He has to really empathize with the hey, American people. Jake, Trump lied every time he opened his mouth. <laughs> A big part of why I think people elected Biden was to be straight with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Give us the tough medicine. I, again, I think the American people would support that message. But on the subject of explaining, I think... With all due respect, Jen Psaki is a better explainer than other people in that, in that building. And one of the things she said about the Keystone Pipeline, for example, is we're already getting that, we're already getting oil from Canada. 
the Keystone Pipeline is not an oil field. Right. It, trans, it transmits the oil to the Gulf of Mexico, it's, it's, but that's not a solution. It would not make your gas, gas price system. cheaper today. Right. right. I mean, so I, I, I think I, the more they can explain that kind of thing. It's going to be a combination of explaining how it works, but also turning toward the idea of a greater cause. And I think you, we are increasingly, even if the wording around Putin modulates, we are increasingly going to hear talk about patriotism, about Americans' duty to defend democracy, how well he can bring that together with making Americans comfortable about what's going to cost a lot more money. The thing it's is, TBD. explanations take a long time. You have if to you're listen explaining, to you're losing. Explanation. This yeah. <laughs> that's true, right? Yeah. But also, Keystone Pipeline, that's something you can see and you can hold on to, right? It was Nord Stream 2 before, which isn't even running gas yet, but that became the centerpiece of the whole sanctions debate when we were talking about maybe sanctioning the central bank and their biggest, and their biggest uh, you know, Bank, other biggest banks, too, that weren't the central bank, it, it becomes this thing of what actually sticks in the heads of Americans who are not familiar with the global marketplace and are not familiar with Russia and Ukraine. And an explanation takes a few more seconds to, to explain. And Ashley, um, there's this new AAA survey showing that 60% of Americans say they're going to change their driving and lifestyle habits with gas over $4 a gallon. For people in D.C. who can take the metro or only have like a 5 or 10 mile uh, commute, it's one thing. But for People who are working, for people who are in rural America, for people who, who work in San Francisco but have to live two hours away because rent's so high, this is really going to be very, very painful. And I wonder if everybody in Washington kind of gets the message. It seems I've heard people say things like, well, the American people are, you know, they're willing to do this for democracy. Well, if you have to spend more to get to work, then you make it work. I don't know. I totally agree. I think that not only is it a gas price issue, it's going to be milk. It's going to be rent. It's going to be all of these prices are going up. And that's why I just go back to my point is that we have to let the American people really understand. It is an explanation, but if you do it well and you're a great storyteller, I think that they will understand why we're in the situation and be committed to see it to the other side. Thanks one and all for being here. Really appreciate it. Great to see all of you. Take me out to the ball game. Baseball fans now have something to cheer about. A rare good news story on the lead. That's next. We have some breaking news and some desired good news in our sports lead today. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. Baseball is coming back. In the last hour, Major League Baseball announced that the owners and the players union have reached a deal on a new collective bargaining agreement, ending the owners' lockout, which have already forced the cancellation of several games this season. CNN's Tom Foreman, who's a Washington Nationals fan, though we will not hold that against him, joins me now. Tom, everyone wants to know, <laughs> when's the season going to start? The Phillies are going down, buddy. Yeah. Uh, April 7th. April Mark 7th. it on your calendar. Okay. April 7th. There had been a whole big push here. The original starting day was going to be March 31st, and that got pushed back to like April 14th. But now they're talking about April 7th. And importantly, they're talking about doing a full season, 162 games, that was very much in question. Uh, right now they have this tentative deal on this five-year collective bargaining agreement ending a 99-day lockout, the longest one in 26 years. still has to be fully ratified by the owners, players. Everyone has to say we're fully on board, but that's considered a formality. So this seems like a done deal. So the lockout essentially stalled free agent signings. So the teams right now, and maybe even in an opening day, might look different. What are we, are we going to see a bunch of 
big stars signing contracts over the next few days? And how. They haven't been able to talk to management since this lockout started. So now the work of four months has to be compressed down into a few weeks. They'll be scrambling to try to figure out who's playing with whom, who's on the injured list. They have to get spring training started this weekend. And bear in mind, with so many players coming from overseas, they have to work out work visas for a lot of them. But... They think they can get it all done with $11 billion in income involved. I bet they will. So it's sort of a ninth inning save on all of this when people were dreading a baseball season that would not be. Some good news, Tom. Thank you for bringing You're it to us. Well. A lot of bleak stuff out there. This is nice. Yeah. Our next guest says he spent six figures on OxyContin prescriptions. Today he got to share his addiction story with the family behind that powerful drug. His story next. The buried lead. That's what we call stories that we believe deserve more attention. Today, after years of litigation, victims of the opioid crisis got their first chance to confront the Sacklers. That's the billionaire family behind Purdue Pharma and Purdue Pharma's highly addictive opioid drug, OxyContin. Purdue Pharma has pleaded guilty in federal court to multiple felonies, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. The Sacklers have long been fighting accusations that Purdue deceived doctors and the public about how addictive Oxy is, pushing it for even lesser pain, essentially risking getting millions of Americans addicted to a potentially deadly narcotic as part of its business plan. Purdue and the Sacklers dispute that. But in 2020, prosecutors said, quote, Purdue admitted that it marketed and sold its dangerous opioid products to healthcare providers, even though it had reason to believe Those providers were diverting them to abusers, unquote. And, quote, the company lied to the Drug Enforcement Administration about steps it had taken to prevent such diversion, fraudulently increasing the amount of its products it was permitted to sell. Purdue also paid kickbacks to providers to encourage them to prescribe even more of its products, unquote. Now a federal judge has approved a bankruptcy settlement between the Sacklers, Purdue Pharma, and a group of eight states and Washington, D.C. Under the deal, the Sacklers must pay out as much as $6 billion for opioid abatement programs, overdose rescue medicines to the states, and to compensate victims. Between 1999 and 2020, the U.S. has lost more than 560,000 people, 560,000 to opioid overdoses. Today, the judge allowed 26 speakers to share their stories, how Oxy destroyed their lives or took the lives of loved ones. My next guest was one of those victims who shared his story. Brian Hampton joins me now. He wrote the book Unsettled, how the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy failed the victims of the American overdose crisis. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. So you testified earlier that, that you started taking Oxy after a knee injury, and you eventually spent six figures on prescriptions over a decade before turning to the black market. What were you told by doctors when they kept prescribing you this drug? I mean, that's a great question, Jake. You know, I I saw many doctors down in Florida, if you know anything, and that's where I was living at the time, if you know anything about where we're at in the overdose crisis today, uh, Florida was filled with what we call pill mills uh, in the 2000s when I was getting Oxy, and I was being told Uh, from people that I trusted, people that I had been taught to trust since a very young age, um, that it would be okay. That if I experienced any symptoms of quote-unquote dependence, 
that it's what we call pseudo addiction, that I wasn't really addicted, that they could taper me off uh, in the office or I could do it at home, but that was never the answer. They consistently upped the dose. I wish I would have known then. I wish my family would have known then uh, what we know now. The current settlement is still contingent on Purdue's reorganization plan, parts of which are still playing out with another judge. For years, you protested at Purdue headquarters and the Department of Justice headquarters here in D.C., begging for an investigation, begging for justice. What do you make of these pending terms, Purdue and the Sacklers forced to pay out $6 billion, among other things? Look, Jake, I mean, I know this is a controversial subject for many. It has taken me some time to get to a place where I can say it's time to put this bankruptcy to a close. You know, what folks don't realize is that the bankruptcy is taking place within the confines of very complicated bankruptcy laws, and it's all civil. So at the end of the day, this is going to end in a settlement. Right now, there's $10 billion on the table for which $750 million is for over 138,000 victims who have lost a loved one or who have suffered uh, as a result of addiction because of Oxycontin. Um, those dollars go away if we continue this process, which the United States trustee uh, is trying to do around these controversial third-party releases. Look, I don't like the third-party releases either, but 105,000 Americans died last year to an overdose. These dollars have never been needed uh, more than they are right now. And what victims have been asking for, like you said, I've been screaming at the top of my lungs about this, I feel like since I got into recovery, is for the attorney general or for a United States attorney or for the Department of Justice to investigate the Sacklers criminally. It is fascinating that I have friends who are sitting in jail for crimes way less, not even a fraction of what the Sacklers have done for simple drug use or marijuana possession. Yet no member of the Sackler family has ever sat for a grand jury. They've never been indicted. The DOJ should put their money where their mouth is. They should make sure that abatement dollars get on the ground and they should make sure that the Sacklers get the same type of justice that you and I would if we were caught for such crimes that they've committed. Today was a virtual hearing, and the first time opioid victims, such as yourself, got to confront the Sacklers. Now, no video or audio recordings were allowed, but the judge acknowledged that Richard Sackler was watching the video feed. Do you think he heard your message, and what was your message? Listen, Jake, he definitely heard my message. Um, it was under court order. His attorney was there. He had to acknowledge uh, that he heard the message and he had to acknowledge that he was listening and he was also watching us by video. You know, what I told Richard Sackler um, was that I hope for the rest of his days that he hears our names in his dreams, that he hears the sirens, that he hears the screams of family members who have lost a loved one uh, to an overdose on the bathroom floor, that he hears the beep to the heart monitor that's failing uh, with a pulse. You know, I, I, I turned Richard's words against him because he said famously, he said about people like me, that we are the criminals, we are the culprits, we are the problem. And I said, Dr. Richard Sackler, you are the criminal, you are the culprit. And I said that he is going to have much higher powers to answer to than the American justice system 
uh, and the bankruptcy court one day. And I hope he has made peace with that. And may God have mercy on his soul, on David's soul, and on Teresa's soul. Today was the ending of a very long and traumatic process for many victims like myself, mm -hmm. the two dozen or so that were on board. It was, it was a three-hour hearing. Uh, I think for my own personal mental health, I have put a period to the end of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, and it is now time to take this fight to the DOJ and have them stop playing political games and to do their job. The book is called Unsettled. Ryan Hampton, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jake. He directed one of the highest grossing superhero movies of all time that was also nominated for an Oscar. Now this Hollywood director is talking about how he was mistaken for a bank robber. Stay with us. Internationally, the director of the blockbuster hit film Black Panther is now talking after having been mistaken for a bank robber. Ryan Coogler went into a Bank of America in Atlanta and attempted to withdraw $12,000 in cash from his account in January. Hey, sir. Hey, man. Do me a favor, man. Come this way. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Put your hand behind your back. Give me one second. You can actually see the one police officer reach for his gun initially and then reholster it. The police report says Kugler had written a note on the back of a bank withdrawal slip asking the money to be counted discreetly. It was a lot of money, $12,000. The teller notified her boss that she thought Kugler was trying to rob the bank, even though he had showed her his ID and his Bank of America card. When police arrived, they handcuffed Kugler and then asked questions. He was eventually released once they realized their profound mistake. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Bernice King, who lives in Atlanta, tweeted, I'm grateful that Ryan is alive. Truly. The Bank of America has apologized. Kugler says it never should have happened. But Bank of America worked with him and addressed the issue to his satisfaction. And he has moved on. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead. All two hours of it, wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.